Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is called Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey there, VJ. Hey. So a special guest is Dr. Rick Walford, who is an assistant professor at sociology who specializes in social stratification, gender, and environmental sociology, creator of Ridic- Ridiculous Games, a board game company with its... Um, First product close to manufacturing phase of production. Welcome, Dr. Rick. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. So great to have you on. Um, you know, uh, why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about the, your journey, uh, telling us a little bit about how you ended up in uh, academia and uh, specializing in sociology, and a little bit about your journey into that, like, um, and how it connects perhaps to. Your interest in board games, yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so, I uh, right out of high school, I joined uh, I joined the military and was in for about five and a half years, and figured out that that definitely wasn't um, the life for me, and I was pretty happy to get out. Um, and after that, I had a friend tell me about the Pell Grant, which I was unaware even existed until that time. So I didn't actually start college until I was 24. Um, so I suppose, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that quali- makes me qualify as a non-traditional student at the time. But uh, yeah, so I started going to, as an undergrad, it took me five years to get my bachelor's. Um, but during that process, I, I basically started as a business major, wasn't sure what I actually wanted to do. Um, but I was just there to improve my material circumstances. I just wanted to make more money or or use my degree to get access to a better job. But while I was there, I ended up changing my major from business to political science and then from political science to sociology. So as I took those courses, I realized where my passion, uh, was really found. And so, um, I decided to major in sociology and then from there, I just took that home. So after I got my bachelor's, I moved to another school to get my master's and then to get my PhD, which took collectively another seven. So I've been in tertiary education for about 12 years, and I just got my PhD this spring and then ended up landing, being one of the lucky ones and landing a tenure track position uh, somewhere else at a teaching college. So so I moved again across country, which was hell. <laughs> but... uh. But that's done. I've been teaching for about eight weeks at this place now. We're almost halfway done with the semester. Semester starts pretty early. Um, and yeah, something about sociology sort of grabbed me. Um, I found myself a little bit more uh, interested in societal level, you know, macro level phenomena when I previously was pretty politically apathetic. Um, but something about learning uh, the way things are really done in the world made me um, made me get interested in it. I think we're all sort of fed a particular script um, and indoctrinated into thinking that the world works a particular way. But um, after learning more about how that is quite incorrect and that there are... <laughs> Um, there are more fact-based understandings of how the world works. 
it sort of opened my eyes and got me deeply interested in sociology. Um, I suppose like hopping to the board game stuff uh, quickly, I've, you know, I, I suppose growing up, I was just another teenage boy that was always interested in video games and games in general. But as I grew older and started to learn more coding, I found that I was actually far more interested in the creative process than I was playing. And I found myself um, uh, creating, like spending time modding video games rather than actually playing them. And just for a, a quick summary of what that means, um, some creators of games allow you to access their files. And so you can make modifications to those files, add more content, remove remove content, and then make the adjustments that you've made publicly available for people to try, and then therefore their game changes the way that you've coded it to be. And um, I just got sucked into that world and would have rather spent hours um, crafting and modding modding a game before I would be to, uh, before I would playing it. So um, from that aspect, I've just realized that I'm far more interested in the creative process than I was playing it. And then retrospectively looking at my life, it sort of makes sense uh, out of all the other things that I did earlier um, in my youth and a little thereafter. So after that, I had this idea for a board game. I've always been into board games. And so I started making a game on my own. And uh, and yeah, I decided to start a company because I love it so much. So I kind of do both things. I'm both a professor and a, a game creator, uh, which makes me busy. But yeah, yeah, okay. interesting. So interesting, <laughs> and it's so interesting to think about um, how, as you're touching in on um, groupthink and hive mind, and how that that terminology has become very popularized today, and how that kind of differs from relating with people individually and like understanding them individually, but then understanding them within the group context, group kind of um, dynamic and how at that macro level we're able to understand even uh, societies, uh, you know, in a, in a contextual understanding of like, you know, that that's a very different phenomena than just the individual um, consciousness, you know, and how, and how do you understand the relationship between like an individual consciousness and, and it's, and the, the, the circumstances upon which it forms or the, the societies in which it forms in and, so a little bit about that, if you could talk a little bit about how you, you understand, like, um, individual being a product of its environment as well as, like, different or unique from its environment. Do you believe that at all, or do you believe in the uniqueness or the individual stamp of each person? <laughs> this, is, this is quite the debate, um, not only in the sociological context, but something that has been in philosophy for ages, about the, the nature versus nurture sort of dichotomy. And the truth of the matter is there's, it's never 100% either way and mm. that there it's either, you know, it, it falls somewhere in the middle. Um, and it also depends on what we're talking about. The degree of, um, uh, a characteristic may be hereditary or something to that, that effect. And so we could simply say that, um, and I'm just throwing out arbitrary values here that your tendency to do X, whatever X may be, is 80% environment, 20% genetics. Mm. Um, at the same time, even X's ratio of contribution, whether it's nature or nurture, or to what degree each is true, 
can vary by the person. So it's not even a static value. We may be able to assign some sort of average uh, if we had that sort of understanding. But that even, that is just um, speculation. We don't quite have the methods, I believe, to contribute something entirely um, or, or contribute a certain ratio of a particular behavior um, uh, to genetics or environment in a way where it makes sense because even through epigenetic effects in neuroplasticity and the way that we understand how the environment affects our biology and vice versa, this cyclical sort of relationship makes something difficult to fully understand. So if there was some sort of epigenetic effect that, that um, affected gene expression later in your life, um, to what extent is that nature or nurture? Well, we might be able to say, well, it's nature because it, but it is rooted primarily at least into some particular genetic expression, but at the same time, that genetic expression wouldn't have necessarily occurred if the environment didn't cue into it and make that change to begin with. Mm. So even labeling something nature or nurture can be problematic, and this is one of the many pieces that are sort of missing in the story of intelligence and in, in, um, its heritability, is that this sort of cyclical relationship between the environment and nature um, for instance, we know quite clearly the kind of effects that socioeconomic status have on intelligence. But when you're doing these sorts of intelligence tests um, and detecting to what proportion of someone's intelligence is a product of heredity, um, to what extent can you actually claim that it is in fact heredity when the result of that heredity may be in, in fact in adaptation to the environment? So. Um, especially if you're looking at these sorts of things later in life, um, just randomly throwing out age, like ages 7 to 10 or something like that, um, it's, it's really hard to actually key into these sorts of discussions of whether something is, is human nature, if you will, and, uh, or the product of the environment. And I, and then don't get me wrong, sociology sort of sides on this uh, part of the debate in general, is our anthropological understanding of the history of humanity has definitely led us to believe that there is no, for the most part, true cultural ubiquity across the planet. And when it comes to a particular human behavior, we can almost always find some exceptions within human existence, whether it's the reference to a hunter-gatherer tribe or a, you know, our experience with an agrarian um, society during the age of colonialization or when we're keeping records of these sorts of things. So it's um, it's an interesting debate. I believe to some extent it might be a futile one at the moment. Um, but, you know, when you have people that are really interested in this sort of stuff, that's obviously not going to stop them from investigating. And I'm not necessarily encouraging them to not do that. Um, so, yeah, I suppose that would be my I – hope, I hope I answered your question <laughs> instead of going yeah. on a long tangent or something. Yeah, because I was also thinking about, like, uh, group consciousness in the sense of, like, cultural consciousness or like um something more than just the environment but like if there's an esoteric aspect of like collective unconsciousness or like um or if you've explored anything like that like how we kind of have an imprint from the american society or united states society and that uh kind of the western kind of uh, ideals versus the eastern you know or the uh non-traditional or the you know what i mean like in other words like we have different societies that have like civilizations that have like a specific kind of imprint 
of their modalities or thinking. And then we're kind of, you know, and then we have the individual that perhaps can, is a product of that kind of uh, psychological imprinting, cultural imprinting, and then, uh, and how culture changes and we kind of judge prior, um, you know, understandings from our perspective. A lot of times it happens in, in America uh, today, in the States today, because, uh, you know, it's like we'll judge like uh, previous generations and say, oh, they were kind of, uh, had prejudices or they had racism or xenophobia or these kinds of things. And and it's like people will say, oh, they were products of their society, they're products of their age, and that they were trying to do the best they could given the social norms at that time. So more like that kind of a thing, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, temporally speaking, like, you know, what is, like, what is defined by a particular culture, you know, changes. Um you know, usually when I'm teaching about gender, I'll mention how uh, particular things may have been defined as masculine in a particular age, but are now considered feminine or vice versa. Um, and how, so what we define as under those terminologies can change, obviously not just based on culture and geography, but also time. Um, the imprints, I suppose what uh, I I do uh, in a, in a way sort of, investigate and study uh, cultural changes um, from an international basis and from a historical basis in some context, depending on what it is that we're, that I'm investigating. Um, like, for instance, I, I, uh, in Japan, there is the, the particular sort of male breadwinner, female homemaker family model. Now, that could be true in multiple sort of countries, and of course it was true in the United States, but the cultural sort of solidity of such a um, an idea is more um, uh, more calcified in Japanese culture than it is in the United States, and the interaction between that cultural phenomena and um, the economy is sort of this interesting interaction that uh, pans out in uh, population reduction and all sorts of other phenomena, um, but that could have been argued to be uh, the product of cultural lag, which is essentially that culture changes very slowly rather than um, quickly like, you know, technology does, which it's usually compared to. Um, whether there's a, I, I will say that whether there is sort of like this milieu or this collective uh, consciousness within um, any particular scale, whether it be global or national or what have you. Um, I can't say I've, I've put any, any effort into investigating that directly, uh, but it is something that I've sort of been interested in as I've heard a little bit more about uh, panpsychic ideas, for instance. Um, and, but to what role that that plays in, you know, what I've been looking at, I can't say that I've really looked much into it. Yeah, yeah, and also thinking about uh, how you hold both spaces for the kind of academic investigative side and perhaps the spiritual side and how, how that plays into your investigations in your academic uh, career and how perhaps your spiritual side, and, and if you could talk a little bit about that and how that's been guiding you. Uh, I know we met in a cultural immersion program uh, monk for a month in India, and we were investigating, you know, Buddhist psychology and Buddhist uh, understandings of the world 
and that's how we we originally met. We, we were talking very much about kind of that kind of milieu. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your journey about uh, in the spiritual side and how that kind of informs perhaps your investigations in academia. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I would actually be um, sort of the I, I haven't intersected those ideas much uh, yeah. at at this at this time. Um, I feel like uh, there there may certainly be an opportunity that I would find in the future looking at um, looking at environmental attitudes is which I primarily study at the moment and I'll give a context for that in a, in a second however I would like to say that you know yeah we did meet in Indian in 2014 I believe um, during that summer and uh, that was sort of like the beginning of a spiritual journey for me um, but much of that journey ended up taking a back seat in my life until my mother passed away in the winter of 2019. And um, that sort of um, brought that element of my life, that being the spiritual, sort of to the, the front stage of my thoughts and uh, my relationship with death, for instance, and um, thinking about my relationship with my father and... Um, you know, wanting to spend time with him more, for instance, because who who knows when that may happen to him too, and all, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, so but but from a spiritual perspective, I um, the way in which I engaged with my spirituality for the most part after that happened was individually. It was a very personal sort of thing that I didn't really interact with other people that much. Maybe sort of post-conversational things after the after the um, thing, if you will, that I did. For instance, I, I spend a lot of time in nature, um, and when I am alone in nature, whether it's hiking or something like that, um, it definitely grounds me in sort of like a spiritual place. Um, and then also about mid two thousand twenty. I started experimenting with psychedelics and psychedelics have also been something that has definitely helped me, um, engage with the spiritual also. And it, it, it isn't necessarily something that I have to do in order to engage with the spiritual, but it's almost like, for instance, in a, in an analogy, right? You're bound to a particular culture, but a lot of people when they travel for the first time and they start engaging with people that see the world very differently than they do and also engaging with a culture that is very different than where they come from, they're allowed to, con to contrast that new information that they've just learned with where they came from and sort of use it to deconstruct, if you will, where they come from. And so being in a place of sobriety my entire life, using psychedelics and experiencing life in that way um, and the, the, you know, the, the physiological impact that it has on your body and your brain, or at least the experience itself, coming back to the sober world and being able to contrast that experience with where, I'm, where I am in, in normal sober circumstances allows me to sort of deconstruct a lot of things um, that, I've, that I previously thought, right? And, and spiritually, that has been a huge deal for me. Um, so I... Even in early 2020, if you would have asked me, do I believe 
that human beings have a spirit or a soul or something, I probably would have gave you a very agnostic answer of, um, I don't know, I have no reason to believe so at the moment, so I'm sort of going to live my life on the assumption that it's not true. Yeah. But now, having a very particular experience with psychedelics has allowed me to realize that the experiencer and the observer in my mind, my, there's a clear disconnection, or not necessarily disconnection, but a separation. There are two different things. And so now, if you ask me, do I believe that we have a, there's a human spirit? Oh, 100%, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, I think I may have gone off a, a, a little bit of a tangent. But, so, but, but at least to return back to, to the question of have I intersected that information with my research at the moment? No. But what I am finding and what I found in the environmental literature in general is that there, I'm not from. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, uh, um, philosophical dichotomy between consequentialism and uh, deontology. Um, but people typically, when they um, talk about their environmental values, if they are in fact someone that believes in environmental justice. Um, most of the time, they don't come from a consequentialist sort of perspective or a utilitarian sort of perspective. They're not, in general, on average, not talking about the long-term material consequences that it could have on the planet. Most people that are actually environmentalists come from the de uh, deontological point of view of um, we do not have the right to do this to Mother Earth. We do not have the right to strip ecosystems away from species um, and create probably one of the largest plummets in biodiversity in human history. Mm. Um, and so it comes from a values and justice perspective rather than a, in spiritual perspective, rather than a economic uh, and resource-based materialist sort of, sort of perspective. So that's interesting. And I feel like that right there is possibly a place where, the spiritual can intersect with the research that I've that I've been doing, but I haven't quite investigated it just yet. Yeah, yeah. So let's take this moment to take a dive into like a little bit more clearly of, of your research interests. Um, you sent me the thesis a little bit, and I read over a little bit of it to understand like environmental impact, environmental allyship in regards to trusting government, which is very interesting. I think that was the thesis, uh, my understanding of it. So tell us a little bit about what your primary uh, research. Um, interests are and how that relates to your thesis and then we can kind of dive in from there thank you yeah sure so um, I would say that my research interests over my academic career have definitely changed but since I became primarily an environmental sociologist this is where um, this is where I find myself in my research so um, I, I mainly focus on environmental attitudes, and at the moment, um, specifically within the United States, uh, there are there are databases out there that sort of measure environmental attitudes from a international perspective. But those databases typically do not have all of the variables that I'm interested in, and specifically um, governmental trust. So I've found in my dissertation research that um, 
government trust has a major impact on someone's tendency to have uh, pro-environmental attitudes, which I define as allyship. Because when you just talk about environmental attitudes, you're talking about a very neutral term that can either be negative or positive. So it has to have a qualifier, whether it's pro or anti, high or low, whatever. And so I use the term environmental allyship because it's, it's directional. So if you are an environmental ally, you tend to have more trust in macro-level systems, um, and of course, in this case, um, the government. And I feel like given the scale of environmental problems, it seems as though that no one individual person will be able to create such a large impact on the environment through their actions alone in general. Um, so the perspective of environmental problems only being solvable through macro-level institutions such as governments seems to make sense to me. And um, we have, in the United States at least, sort of this conception that typically people who are right-leaning on the political spectrum um, are uh, heavily anti-government, have libertarian sort of ideals, um, and though that isn't entirely true, because it really depends on who's in office, whether someone trusts the government or not, um, and there's research for that. But in general, I think the, the, the value systems that are sort of associated with the political ideologies of the United States, if you're on the right, you want small government. If you're on the left, you typically want larger government. Um, and so even, but to be clear, even after controlling for political affiliation, I still found an association between trust and the government. So what that means is even if you are politically progressive, if you don't trust the government, you're still less likely to be an environmental ally, and vice versa would be true for those who are conservative, um, which is why I find a statistically significant effect in trust in government even after controlling for political affiliation and many other sort of variables um, alongside that, probably like 25 variables or something within the, um, within the analysis. Um, so I, I think I may have answered your question if we could return to it just in case I didn't. But yeah. um, that's sort of the direction that the dissertation goes to and, and what it finds. Of course, there's far more to it. You know, it's, it's I mean, I, it's a decent-sized dissertation, if you will. Obviously, it's not my, my advisor's who was 360 pages or something. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So I just remind listeners of the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm here with co-host Scott Raven and uh, special guest Dr. Rick Walford. Um, so we're talking a little bit about, also I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you had mentioned a little bit about how your journey went from political apathy to um, kind of a, a very engaged, uh, engaged sociological academia. Um, and now in your pre-interview questions, you talked a little bit about your journey in regards to um, kind of the uh, anarcho-capitalists that prior prior to kind of encountering or really becoming a sociologist, you encountered some uh, some subgroups of anarcho-capitalism and like how that kind of influenced you and how and you could illuminate a little bit more about um, kind of the pseudo-conspiracy theories and how those kind of mentalities you've rejected, but that and kind of going into a little bit prior to that, what kind of things would, would come up for you in these communities, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a <laughs> kind of um, 
you know, I think many of us, and maybe this is just telling me telling myself this to make me feel better, but I think some of us, if not most of us, can look at our past and point out sort of cringe parts of our history. Yeah. Um, and, th- and this is most certainly one of them. So before I started going to college, um, and not long after I uh, left the military, I sort of ran across anarcho-capitalist communities um, which are essentially, you know, very heavily libertarian, anti-government um, uh, circles. And they're, along with that political ideology, I also encountered many sort of conspiratorial groups as well. And it was these um, dispositions, if you will, that actually started my... Uh, the curing of my political apathy. So retrospectively looking at that, I fell on, certainly fell on the wrong side of the ideological paradigms, um, but it was at least enough to get me wanting to do something or more concerned about, you know, macro level um, phenomena where previously I was just completely uninterested in that sort of stuff. And most of that due to the fact that I was just indoctrinated with a very particular sort of perspective of culture and history without knowing what was actually happening. Now, of course, quote, what was actually happening, unquote, at the time, I was being fed very different sort of narratives about the world and who, um, you know, who was in charge, if you will, the ruling class, the ruling elite. Um, but it was enough, for, again, for my political apathy to be cured. But So that, that may have been one of the motives that fueled me to get involved in college to begin with, and then going in the business and then political science and then sociology. Now, of course, sociology, well, both political science and sociology, um, informed me otherwise, <laughs> right? So um, many of the claims um, of those spheres, if you will, uh, I would say were definitively refuted by um, the people, you know, professors or peers. Um, So aligning more with what I would politically affiliate to now, which would be far more on the left um, of the political paradigm, uh, you know, that it it was sort of sparked with learning more about, you know, the, again, government and the ruling elite and um, the international economy and all of these other other factors, whether they even be cultural, such as gender and race, or the material, such as the economy and stuff. So <clears throat> starting with that, I, 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 again, I look back at that part in my life and I cringe a little bit, but I wonder if that never happened, would I be who I am now? And the answer is probably no. <laughs> so in a way, I should be grateful for the fact that I ran into anarcho-capitalist conspiracy theorists online and then obviously even more um, credit to the professors and intelligent peers that I interacted with thereafter that sort of taught me otherwise. So. Yeah. yeah, So interesting. And like um, thinking about like the, the, uh, how like the evolution of, um, Conspiracy theories and over the years, they've been very different kind of things come arising for people. You know, now in the COVID time, we have all these COVID-related conspiracy theories and all this kind of thing, which is very uh, unfortunate because, uh, you know, the um, 
the especially the people who are pushing against the vaccination, um, you know, kind of like are coming up with these fantasies about that and that that is having a real-time impact on our ability to counter the virus and um and if you have any uh, thoughts on the on the pandemic and uh and how that's kind of impacted the uh su- collective psyche or the collective understanding of of uh ourselves yeah any thoughts on that um at least at least saying or uh talking a little bit about what you were mentioning about conspiracy theories um <laughs> Uh, to me, it seems as though a majority of conspiracy theories sort of evolve out of existing ones rather than being spawned um, brand new, mm. you know, from the ether. So, I mean, the obviously the anti-vaxxers of the of co- for COVID nineteen um, have mainly evolved out of the anti-vaxxing sort of conspiratorial movements pre COVID. You know. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, a great deal of, um, or there's a growth in sort of white nationalist sentiment that is uh, not necessarily primarily, but at least um, contributed from sort of the, you know, the Jewish conspiracy that, you know, they they completely run the, the global economy or whatever. And that isn't necessarily new. That's been around for a very, very long time. But, you know... But, these conspiracies can have their upticks in popularity, popularity, and even in, in downticks. When it comes to COVID, <laughs> um, I, I do think it's it's interesting to to sort of be in an age of um, such a large scale anti intellectualism. I think anti intellectualism is a is a huge sort of um, contributor to why. Uh, people are rejecting, um, uh, you know, rejecting the vaccines that the United States in its history has always been in some fashion anti-intellectual. And there is actually a sociologist that I can't quite remember at the time that came here from France with a colleague of his in the mid 1800s, I believe, and basically draw the conclusion that the United States society is unique in these particular ways, one of them being anti-intellectualism. Um, that even the, the most, and not to sound white towery or anything, even the most uneducated person will come to the conclusion that they are smarter than someone that has spent their life in, in the educational system and in all actuality knows far more than, than that common person. But So I think rejection of... Um, uh, it, vaccines comes not exclusively from that, but does emerge mostly out of an anti-intellectual sentiment that we have in the United States. Um, having professionals and academics telling us what to do, you know, that also synthesizes very well with our anti-governmental history, too. Um, and it, 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 this just doesn't necessarily surprise me much, but uh, despite the fact that this has always been in our history, it does seem that it hasn't been quite at this magnitude as it once was. And so there is something unique about contemporary society that makes this more, you know, uh, more large scale, more popular idea. Um, maybe we can associate that to the, you know, the use of social media. Um, 
the ability to spread mis- misinformation, um, playing into people's sort of gullibility, though that, that would have been true before as well. Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely interesting. Of course, it has material consequences, like you mentioned. You know, will we ever be able to reach herd immunity? Probably not um, because of these people and don't mean to universalize them as some sort of one monolithic group, but um, because of a lot of people not, you know, wanting to get the vaccine, that's probably why we'll never have uh, herd immunity, really. But anyway, yeah, I, I would say that's a general sort of overview of my two cents on the issue. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, of course, there's also a great deal of sensationalism in small case, um, uh, you know, small cases. For instance, I even have students that say, well, I'm not going to get the vaccine. Haven't you seen the YouTube videos? Yeah. <laughs> right. And um, <laughs> and it, the, we, we have a tendency to take these very entertaining snippets and blow them up so a lot of people see them and obviously make them seem more um, uh, more frequent than they definitely uh, than they are, right? You may have, don't get me wrong, there are people who have taken the vaccine and have died, arguably, as a result of the interaction between their body chemistry and the vaccine itself. Mm. But that is such a small, small um, group of the population when one person sees three YouTube videos about three people among millions, right? If not billions, it's like, why, why are you drawing conclusions and actually allowing that to affect your, you know, ability to get the vaccine when it's literally three people, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway. You'd be better off, like, as far as statistically goes, you're better off playing the lottery of mega millions and, and understanding yeah, that yeah, one or sure. two people are buying it and, out of millions, you know, you're statistically you're better better shot at that than, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. But um, also, I want to touch in on. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about also about the on the other side of the political spectrum. You have the Occupy movement and what your opinion on that is, and uh, and how it's emerged. And now I see a lot of stuff on Facebook under the the label Occupy that perhaps is it, it falls prey to kind of cutting or snipping information in a way that's, you know, emotionally triggering or intending to kind of get people galvanized by appealing to their emotional base. Um, uh, What do you think about that kind of strategy in general in in social media? You know, we have like, uh, you know, even even the left as well and the left and the right seem to be more um, trying to appeal to a trigger reaction. Uh, in their in their presentation of the facts, you know. Yeah, for sure, and I think the reason that that may be done is because it's effective. Um, yeah, and there's there's data out there to prove how effective it is now. Not to say that there wasn't necessarily, but now we have these social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, etc., that are capable of utilizing that emotionality to, you know, the advantage of keeping people on their platforms and stuff. But uh, you know, the whole idea of uh, there's a term for it and I can't quite think of it but it's just you know if if they have in their database that this is the kind of content that you like they're going to continue to feed you that content and so you more grounded and rooted in your pre-existing ideas rather than um, the experience trying to make you experience any sort of cognitive dissonance by prove or by trying to present you with information that's um, contradictory to what you've been uh, fed for X number of, of 
time or whatever, right? So, um, it's so yeah. So I don't think that this is strictly a right wing phenomenon. So I'm not trying to say that obviously this is the this is the result of that. And um, it is. I think there's value. I think there's something real. So typically, the idea. I would say in this hyper-rationalized, capitalistic, bureaucratic country that we live in, and honestly, the global economy is sort of based on the hegemonic um, influence of the United States, so it's not just limited to the U.S., but um, it, it's funny how even in that world, we know how useful emotions are and how we as human beings are more fueled by subjective reality than objective reality, and how deeply human emotions are to begin with. Mm. And so um, playing on those for us, and, and I'm, I'm most certainly not immune to it, despite the fact that I'm a social scientist myself, when I see videos of police abusing their power, it gets me pissed off, mm. right? Like probably more than anything else. Um, now, so do I have to ground myself in this place where, okay, this is a video. To what extent is this sensationalized or to what extent is this actually representative of what's going on? And then, of course, looking into the data, it actually fits somewhere in the middle. Um, so whether my anger is justified or not, who knows? Nevertheless, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely don't think this is a tactic exclusively used by one p political paradigm. I mean, it's, it's a useful tactic. And so, um, and so everyone's going to use it. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think it's good to think about like, um, how we can kind of monitor ourselves when we're, when we're feeling, um, you know, kind of activated by this content and be like, can we, can we, can we take a moment to be like, well, what, what exactly would contextualize it, you know, within the larger framework and understand, you know, is this video simply lighting a fire about something that's, that's you know, not statistically or, or not representative of the entities of which it depicts or whether or not, you know, that maybe there's some, there's some uh, you know, truth to it that we need to take action about. And just being able to distinguish between those two. I know a lot of times, like, for example, people will circulate um, – you know, information about like, like one time someone sent me a uh, video about, um, you know, the way that the government allocates its money and some right wing cons uh, conspiracy theorists were like, oh, they're giving X amount of millions of dollars to these, uh, these fundings while, while, while at the same time, I mean, these are, these are just general ways in which the government spends its money to invest in, um, you know, uh, countries around the world. And they were saying, oh, this is something that we shouldn't be doing, but uh, during COVID, rather, they were kind of making a connection during COVID. Uh, but at the same time, it was like it was like amplifying, you know, ongoing spending and putting recontextualizing it within the case of um, of the COVID crisis. So I had to really like think about it and like investigate a little bit more when I got sent the video of, of a person kind of belaboring the point. And I was like, oh, okay, I understand now is how it places in context. So in all these kinds of times when people send you YouTube videos, you know, it's easy to get triggered and you get activated and be like, oh, this sounds so horrible. And, you know, follow the narrative they're telling you, but then taking a moment to like investigate is important. Yeah. For sure. I think like there are some useful skills that we are simply not taught 
um, young in life. And, you know, someone could say, well, um, we should teach all children who go through high school how to change their oil. And that is a very material, materially useful skill that I would argue, yeah, probably that that is also, that's, that's, that's useful. At the same time, though, we don't also teach children enough emotional intelligence or the ability to be self-reflective in sort of like a eudaimonic way, like to, to invest time and effort into self-improvement. Should and maybe this is something that I'm biased on, but but I believe should be something that we should all you know invest time and effort into doing. Obviously, um, and that it's easy for me to say that because recently, not even recently, but I would say maybe within the last like eight years of my life, that has been a very central sort of um, um, value that I've tried to uh, put a lot of effort into and to improve uh, as much as I can, catch myself when I'm doing something shitty, saying something shitty, or like even, and I think when we had a discussion um, before, I talked to you about how even dropping something, like I'll be preparing dinner and I drop something on the floor, Right. And I get angry. (laughs) It's like there are very few things that actually get me angry, but like just dropping something on the floor gets me angry. And uh, I was um, listening to uh, a particular guru talking about that sort of phenomenon. Excuse me. And uh, he's basically saying that uh, in, in, in many cases, the reason that you get angry off of something so simple is that you expect the world to work in an orderly fashion. Mm. And that um, in this very sort of cause and effect, but you have an expectation of that cause and effect. And when it doesn't work your way, um, or your expectations, like some like dropping something on the floor, because you definitely didn't intend for that to happen, but it did. And it's just like, oh, why can't this one simple thing just work the way I <laughs> want it to work? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, but coming to sort of try to trying to internalize the idea that there's a great deal of chaos in our world and um, the idea that it works orderly and that um, it, at least within our own perceptions and based on our own expectations is sort of just it's a bad way of living life because you're going to be disappointed regularly, right? <clears throat> but if you believe that there's a great deal of chaos in the world when something like that happens that will more likely align with your expectations and therefore you're not going to get angry at such a simple thing. So I've been trying to meditate on that idea and get that more internalized into myself. So I don't get this little simple burst of anger just by dropping a green bean on the floor. or something. <laughs> so. Yeah. Thank you. And the process of self inquiry, the process of investigating oneself, as you're saying is the has a certain power to it, to be able to uh, take a stand and be like, Oh, you know, Deconstructing oneself is a way in which the society is able to find pathways to deconstruct, or, or do we, we're able to deconstruct our connection to society. So, um, you know, we're able to free ourselves from perhaps. Uh, I know, like uh, the um, the matrix metaphor comes up to me, like how we're connected to this, uh, you know, uh, power grid of like assumptions and cultural um, uh, cultural imprints. And if we're able to go through the process of self-inquiry, whether or not we're able to disconnect and act independently, or if that's even possible, 
to kind of deconnect to the matrix or deconnect from the matrix and what exactly would living like that would be. Uh, you know, we have some examples of people like Socrates or, or all these different, uh, you know, self-realized souls who seem to, who seem allegedly to, uh, you know, free themselves from the, the, um, the, uh, yeah, the, in the imprints of their, of their, uh, programming, but at the same time, they seem to have been exemplary of or continue to perpetuate a certain type of thinking that, uh, we all have to then, you know, replicate their process rather than their, um, necessarily that what they're saying, you know what I mean? Like in other words, like, you know, yeah. sometimes they end up being activated by the hegemony itself and used in a way that perpetuates these thinkings that they perhaps themselves do not subscribe to. You know, the perfect example is Christianity, how Christianity has been mobilized by the 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 uh, hegemony to like, you know, activate in a way that seems to perpetuate the very systems that Christ himself seems to have uh, opposed, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's just the, that is the product of socialization, and it seems to be one of the main functions of the state in general. Yeah. Um, and other institutions that function within the state, like the family, um, gender, and other things. Uh, it's, it's hard, I would say, to sort of break out of those paradigms that we've been so deeply indoctrinated into. And I think as inherently social beings, it's hard to imagine a society that doesn't include those sorts of um, sorts of mechanisms, even in a hypothetically a society that has values that are more centralized on the individual that um, you know self-discovery and reflection and stuff like that question everything um, you know don't even uh, obey abide by the culture of the state <laughs> mm. uh, unless you've investigated thought into a question that sort of question everything sort of perspective seems disadvantageous to the state and not just the state but the ruling elite yeah so to me it seems it's it's not to say that there's some, some conspiratorial network of people that are doing a great deal of social engineering and trying to create a society where everyone is sheep, right, um, to use that terminology. Uh, but at the same time, and this is historically true pretty much throughout all of time for the, hu for the human species, maybe other than hunter-gatherer tribes, is that um, the culture what is right, what is wrong, what is legal, what is not, um, those definitions come from the ruling elite of the time. Yeah. You know? And this is sort of what you know, Hegel's dialectics are, are pretty much all about, where you have a ruling, ruling set of ideas and a ruling culture, um, that being the thesis, and then over time... Um, an antithesis emerges, or a counterculture, or those in which the system does not work for, stepping up for their justice, and then through a cultural battle, you emerges a synthesis. Mm. But over time, that synthesis becomes a thesis, and the cycle continues, right? Um, and I, it, it's, it's just, 
it's it is incredibly hard, even as someone that is that is very left, if you will, on the political spectrum. It seems hard to imagine a future where, if there are people who are situated at the top of the socioeconomic hierarchy, that a culture that advocates for the questioning of all and a great deal of self-reflection, which I would argue um, brings you back to the former, is ever going to be truly advocated for. Um, yeah, yeah, I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So, um, yeah, then how we kind of um, evolved and how we kind of, and how we understand that evolution. So it's very interesting. Let me just quickly, um, let me just quickly do some quick announcements. Um, you're listening to Radio for Brooklyn, uh, independent listener-supported radio. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations and listeners like you. So every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue to our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofbrooklyn.org. If you're an Amazon shopper, you'd like to donate in a way that costs you nothing, to you, go to rafebrooklyn.org slash Amazon and register RFB as your Amazon Smile Charity. Every time you shop, portion of your purchase benefits the Radio for Brooklyn. If you're listening to Radio for Brooklyn when you're when you're in front of your computer, please free yourself up by downloading a number of free mobile apps for iPhone or Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. And be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming, upcoming, upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at radiofbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And Radio Booking is sponsored in part by Peter's Valley School of Craft. Peter Valley's Peter Peter's Valley presents the Fall Craft Fair at Sussex County, New Jersey Fairgrounds on September 25th and 26th. Visitors can browse and buy handcrafted pieces from over 100 exhibiting artists. Ticket sales uh, support Peter Valley School of Craft, fostering creative thinking through fine craft education programs and events. Tickets and more information at petersvalley.org. That P-E-T-E-R-S. B-A-L-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Okay, so um, we have about five more minutes left, or four more minutes left now. Uh, so why don't we get some last thoughts and the last uh, ideas or, or what you hope the listener will take out of this conversation or any final giveaways uh, of uh, takeaways of uh, like what, what, what they can act on or what they can actionable item they can do? Hmm. <laughs> um... I suppose that I would say that spending, as, as hard as it may be for some people, um, because some people who have a great deal of trauma um, may find it difficult to do a deep dive into themselves and perform the work of self-reflection self-discovery and self-improvement. Um, I have been nothing but happier, though I'm not going to say that my experience is universal among everyone, um, but I would still deeply encourage people to have a regular practice of doing these sorts of, of, of um, doing these sorts of things. And there are all sorts of ways of doing them. Some of them more theological than others, um, some of them more individual than others. Um, mine has been a very individual and existential sort of experience. 
uh, for me, existential in the way where it's not necessarily um, bound to other um, other ideas that are pre-existing. Not to say that they haven't been useful because they have been, but so <laughs> yeah. So I would say that that self-reflection is worth it. I, I would say that it can be painful for more people than or some people than others, um, but. I nevertheless think that it is worth the time and effort to do for anybody and that in the end, when you come out the struggle on the other side of that journey, you will probably be happier than you were before you started it. Thank you. Thank you. It's really great. I mean, a minute left. So Scott, do you want to just quickly chime in a little bit or say a few words? Uh, no, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Rick for uh, sharing his thoughts kind of from uh from you know a military background to political science into into sociology uh each of those you know kind of three experiences seem to really shape you um and you know leading into kind of this creation of this this board game and i guess what you're uh what you're teaching right now um can you talk a little bit about you know currently what what the classes are currently that you have uh lined up for this semester even and uh you know where where maybe where that's going and uh, uh a little bit about that we only a minute left, though. Yeah, sure. So, real quick, um, I just started at the college that I'm teaching at. Now, I taught for four years at the previous institution that I was at, so I had a lot of courses already prepped and ready to go. So, starting at this new college, um, I am teaching uh, three introductory introductory level courses and a course about social movements, change, and conflict. Next semester, I'll be teaching sociology of gender. Um, social problems and social research methods and the following I'll be teaching environmental sociology and all of that so I have a lot of course prep <laughs> that I have to do over the next year or two um, but yeah it, in that's basically what I've been investing my time in at this institution currently is just course prepping thanks so much so, yeah, guys thank you. thank you all right we'll talk to you later thanks so much for being here thank you all right bye-bye thank you both